Well, the word empty is one that usually doesn't bring about good feelings. We don't want our gas tanks to be empty. We don't want our bank accounts to be empty. I certainly don't even want the little box in the back of the freezer that contains ice cream sandwiches to be empty. (laughs) And so there are lots of things that can be empty and it just doesn't bring about great feelings. A couple thousand years ago in Palestine, at a wedding, there was some wine jars that were nearing empty. And Jesus, being Jesus, changed things. Last week we left off in John chapter 19 with Jesus on the cross declaring that it is finished. And this morning I want us to go just a little further in John's gospel. In John chapter 20 now, a couple of days later, beginning with verse 1. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been moved from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter came along behind him and went straight into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the cloth that had been wrapped around Jesus' head. The cloth was still lying in its place, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first went inside. He saw... And believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to rise from the dead. Then the the disciples went back to where they were staying. And so we imagine this scene, it's early in the morning. And Mary arrives first. She sees that this tomb is empty. This stone is rolled away. It's not what she was expecting. And so she runs back and tells them, you all got to come see this. They've taken his body and we have no idea where they've put him. It was enough that made them want to run. And then upon finally entering the tomb... He was afraid to go in at first, but it's John, John the author of this gospel, John who was an eyewitness to the events of Jesus' ministry, John who was most likely the youngest of all of the twelve, maybe still a teenager in his early twenties at the time of these events. It's John that was the only one of them that was at the foot of the cross a few days before. 
John tells us Peter gets there first. Or no, he tells us that he gets there first. But he didn't go in. Peter, bold as he was, goes right in. John follows in behind him. And John tells us that the moment that he saw those clothes lying there was the moment that he came to believe in the resurrection. And then we go further into the story. In verse 11, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They have taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize it was Jesus. He asked her, Woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have put him, and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned toward him and cried, cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, Do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. And so we see this scene that she is now bent over. She's looking into the tomb. Still wrestling with the fact that the body that she arrived early that morning to care for is not there. Told... He's not here. Jesus comes up behind her. It's that moment that he speaks her name, Mary, that she comes to believe in the resurrection. Now, church, let's not miss this. There's a very clear and simple reason that they never understood in those three different times in the Gospels where Jesus takes the time to say this is what's going to happen y'all I'm going to have to go and I'm going to have to suffer son of man is going to have to die and then be raised on the third day not long ago Right over here in the wing on Wednesday evening, a group of us gathered for Bible study. We looked at John's version of this and how in that third time that he tells them, he gives them some more details. He says, essentially, that I'm going to have to be beaten. I'm going to have to stand trial. That this is going to get ugly. And of course, they still can't wrap their minds around it. Why? 
because someone coming back to life just wasn't something they could fully understand. And that might be a little troubling to us, or a little puzzling at least, because they had seen it happen. They saw it with the widow's son at Nain. They saw it, uh, Peter and John, with John's brother James, they were there in the home of Jairus, the synagogue leader, when he brought his daughter back to life. They were there out in Bethany, a couple miles outside of Jerusalem, when Jesus called for Lazarus to come out of that tomb. Been there long enough that his own sister said, Oh, don't be rolling away the stone. Her objection was the smell. He's been in there four days, Jesus. Don't do this. And yet all of this still could not prepare them for the fact that he was going to walk out of that tomb. And so that's why they are bewildered at all this. Some of us who have had the gospel accounts at our fingertips for years, even decades, might think that we would have handled it better. I don't think so. I don't think so. These people were chosen by Jesus. They were handpicked. And yet, they still struggled with this. And so, Mary comes to believe when he calls her name. And then we go deeper into the story, but in the meantime, Jesus goes to the, the remnant of the twelve. We know Judas is no longer with them. But he goes to them. John tells us that they are in a room and the door is locked. And Jesus appears. And I've seen a lot of Christians wrestle with this. At one time in my life, I wrestled with it too. Thinking that maybe that his appearance, all of a sudden, in a locked room, kind of had something to do with him telling Mary, don't hang on to me. Don't take hold of me. But no. When Jesus tells Mary, don't hang on to me, what he's really telling her is don't physically touch me. What he's telling her church family is at that moment he says, I just saw you crying. I know you're upset at the idea of me not being here. And he's saying, Mary you're going to have to embrace the idea of me not physically being here with you. You, sister, are going to have to learn to carry on without me being physically present because that's the mission of the church. And so the idea that he shows up in a room, that he is actually flesh and bone and showing up behind locked doors throws people for a bit of a loop. But this is where we have to say, 
we're going to have to embrace the supernatural a little bit. Because it's easy for us to say, well now how does he enter a room? John has told us the door's locked. Church, he just conquered death. He just conquered death. If he wants to go from here to there and show up in a room behind a locked door, he can do that because he is Jesus. He is God in the flesh and his power is without limit. And we've done a really good job of limiting his power, I think. We do a good job, unfortunately, of limiting His power today in our lives. That this is the same Jesus that when He showed up in Bethany to raise Lazarus from the dead, that the Jewish mourners said it, Mary said it, Martha said it, the sisters of Lazarus. If only you had gotten here sooner, then you could have done something about this and He might not be dead expressing that we understand that you have some power over sickness. But none of them, not one of them understood that he had power over death. And church family, we have a hope today because he has power over death. And so we go now further in the story, picking up with verse 24. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen me, and yet have believed. So Thomas came to believe in the resurrection when he was able to touch the nail-scarred hands and the previously pierced side of his Lord. And we know he believes in the resurrection because he makes this declaration. My Lord and my God. Which member of this trio do you most identify with in your belief in the resurrection? Is it John? Is it Mary? Is it Thomas? At what point in your life did you first come to believe in the resurrection? Or if you're with us this morning and you have not 
fully embraced the idea of a resurrected Savior, at what point will you embrace the resurrection? That's the question I have. John wants us to believe. And he tells us that that is why he wrote his gospel. If you can advance the slide, please. I may have a dead battery. John 20, 30 and 31, he closes this chapter with these words. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But they are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. I appreciate that. I appreciate the straightforward nature of Brother John. That he says, this is the reason that I felt compelled to write all this stuff down. This is the reason. It's so that you would draw the same conclusion that I have drawn. That Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And that by believing in the resurrected Jesus. God in the flesh who demonstrates multiple times. Ultimately in his own death. That he has power over death. We've all seen a clock. What it looks like when it's at noon, or for those of us that stay up late, at midnight. When both hands on the clock are in the same place. And then second by second, minute by minute, those hands begin to separate. But 12 hours later, they arrive back in the same place and... That clock looks like it did 12 hours before. The difference is time has passed. Half a day is gone between when that clock, those clock hands were last together. And that's kind of church where we are in John's gospel, in John's story of Jesus' ministry. Because we're at this place where some things, if we were to sit down and read John's gospel from front to back, we would find ourselves at a place where some things are starting to look familiar. He went up to Jerusalem for Passover, as we discussed last week. And back in the beginning of John's gospel, we're told he's going up to Jerusalem for Passover. It was while in Jerusalem that he is crucified. It is while he is being crucified that he says those words, I am thirsty. And what is given to him? They take wine vinegar and they give it to him. The method that they put it up there to him for him to drink from it is they use a hyssop plant. Now, early in John's Gospel, Jesus is at that aforementioned wedding in Cana. It's 
on the verge of getting embarrassing for the hosts of this wedding banquet. And Jesus' own mother comes and says, they're almost out of wine. Now Jesus' response is, woman, don't involve me. My time has not yet come. He's saying to her, mom, just drop it. Because my ministry is not supposed to begin just yet. Mary, being the good mother that she is, ignores him. And looks immediately at some servants and says, you all do exactly what he's about to tell you to do. And that's when Jesus says, take that which is empty and fill it. And so they took those jars and they filled them with water. And he turns it into wine. And we're told, because someone comes up to the host of the banquet and says, Wow, you've done something most people don't do. You saved the best for last. And so what are we told right there, church? That this was good wine. This was good. That what Jesus offers the world is good stuff. When Jesus proclaims, I am thirsty... What does the world offer Jesus? Wine vinegar that's not fit to drink. And so here we are at this place where we're reminded that what Jesus offers is good. That what the world offers us is not fit for consumption. And so here we are once again with a hyssop plant. Because if we go back to the book of Exodus, at that very first Passover that was ever celebrated, the Israelites are instructed, take the hyssop plant and dip it in the blood of the Lamb and spread it over that door so that you will continue to live And throughout the night, as terror reigned on the people of Egypt, who would never yield to the one true God, even though he had given them so many opportunities, he had given Pharaoh so many opportunities, and in that moment they were spared because of the blood of the Lamb. They continued to have life. And we find ourselves today, church, as people who continue to have life, life everlasting, because of the blood of the Lamb. And church, they call it good news. It's the best news the world can have. Because if you're here this morning you likely know what it's like to experience loss. You know grief. You know pain. You know suffering. And the idea that this world is not our home, that there is something better waiting for us in eternity, life everlasting, 
Isn't that the best news of all? And it's all because of the resurrection. And so, we find ourselves this morning. People who have come maybe to have a little better understanding of the value of that hyssop plant. To understand the symbolism of what it means to see that Jesus offers us what we really need. When we are empty, He is the only thing that can truly fill us. Because what the world offers us, church, is not fit for consumption. And so we find ourselves back where we started. For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through Him. And that church family is what we need to cling to. That what happened on the cross happened because of love. It was self-sacrifice for us. It was for the good of all of humanity. And so I pose the question, at what point did you believe in the resurrection in your life? Or, if it applies to you this morning, at what point will you believe in the resurrection? Because it does apply to you. If you're hearing the sound of my voice, the resurrection should matter to you. Whether you've already come to understand it and embrace it, or whether you're still searching. And in a moment, as we sing... We offer an invitation, as we always do when we gather on Sunday mornings. And if you need to come and have us pray with you about something in your life, something that's weighing on you, then we can do that. But oh, if you're here this morning, and you need to embrace the resurrection once and for all, and put on Christ in baptism, what better day than today? to experience new life in Jesus. Let's stand and sing this song.